Welcome back to the Diet Doctor Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brett Scher. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Mariella Glantz. Now, Dr. Glantz is an endocrinologist practicing in Tel Aviv, Israel. But as we talk about, she's had quite the international journey. She was born in Argentina. Then she was in the United States where she trained in internal medicine at Harvard and endocrinology at Columbia, and then was working in New York. Um, and then eventually went to Israel, where now she's the founder and director of the Glantz Center for Diabetes Care in Tel Aviv. And she's even developed an entrepreneurial side, which as you'll hear was probably more by accident than by purpose, but she's the co-founder of Eat Sane and Metabolics, and she's got her own low-carb conference. And so she is well-versed um, and really into the, the low-carb world, and you're going to hear why. I mean, you're going to hear her talk about um, how it's completely changed, how she sees um, diabetes, both type one and type two, and how she treats it and the results she gets. And we talk about, you know, lifestyle versus medications and like some very um, promising new medications and how she sees the balance between low carb nutrition and medications like SGLT2 inhibitors and even uh, bariatric surgery. And of course, we talk a lot about insulin and the use of insulin. Um, and we get into COVID. I mean, how could we not? And, and the time we're in now, I'm talking about metabolic health and COVID and the the risk it poses, but also the opportunity it brings to talk more about it. So we kind of have a whirlwind of discussion of all these topics, but she has so much experience, so much knowledge. I think you're really going to appreciate hearing her perspective. Uh, and of course, she's got an upcoming lecture series, which is taking the place of her in-person conference, which um, I think is going to be really interesting, and you'll hear about that as well. So I hope you enjoy this interview with Dr. Mariella Glant. Hi, everybody. Pardon the interruption, but before we get on with the interview, there's one more thing I wanted to mention that we actually didn't get a chance to talk about in the interview, that that Dr. Glant wrote a booklet um, with asweetlife.org. The booklet is called How to Eat in a Time of COVID-19. So we talk a little bit about um, the importance of nutrition and metabolic health with the COVID-19 infection. So that booklet actually might really come in handy uh, through asweetlife.org. Also, one other thing I want to talk to you about, if, if you're a clinician of any kind watching this, whether you're a physician or a nutritionist or a health coach or a dietitian or a personal trainer at Diet Doctor, we're now rolling out our Diet Doctor Pro membership. And what that is, is it's a membership for professionals like you, where we can work with you to provide our content, our membership benefits for all of your clients at a discounted rate. Um, and as we're developing a more interactive platform with the goal being to make it as easy as possible on you to get the greatest success with your client. So if you're interested, pre please reach out to me personally um, at brett, B-R-E-T at dietdoctor.com, um, or you can always leave us a message at the Diet Doctor website uh, to see if maybe this is a good fit for you and your practice. All right, now let's get back to the interview with Dr. Mariella Glant. Dr. Mariella Glant, thank you so much for joining me on the Diet Doctor podcast today. My honor. What an honor. <laughs> Yeah, we've been talking about this for a while. I mean, you being in, in Israel, and I've seen you at so many conferences here in the U.S., and we keep saying we wanted to have a chance to, to sit down and do this interview, so I'm so glad we get to do it now. And in, in preparing for this interview, I had to research you a little bit more, and I had no idea how international you were. Born in Argentina, trained at Harvard and then Columbia, uh, working in New York and then going to Israel. So what, what is it in your background that made you kind of move around so much and make you so international here? I guess I'm a wandering Jew. I don't know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I guess my parents, since I was little, they went to study, abroad, you know, in, in Princeton. My dad did his PhD there. Then we went back to Argentina. Then we, you know, moved back. And then life just took me. Love took me. 
you know, so. <laughs> right. The journey. Yeah. The so journey. I, what, I think it's so interesting because you've, you've experienced medicine in multiple different countries and multiple different settings. So I want, I want to talk about that a little bit, for, but first, um, let's get into, you are an endocrinologist. You've trained at some of the finest institutions for endocrinology, a big part of which is taking care of people with diabetes. Now, knowing what you know now and looking back to the way you were training, what's your, the way you were trained, what's your impression about what you learned in, in your training about managing diabetes? I, I feel like I just started six years ago. I feel like you know, I've been practicing for 20 something years, but I feel like everything I've learned in the last few years since I discovered how actually diabetes works, like what is the root cause of diabetes. Um, you know, it's just so far, so far removed from everything I learned in the conventional training. And I see myself now when I, when I talk to my peers, how far removed my understanding is from what everybody else is, which is kind of a lonely process, but this is uh, the way, you know, it's just a, a real big gap between what, I used to know and what I, what I know now since I discovered, um, you know, things from a different perspective. Yeah. So, so what is that perspective? You said now that you understand the root cause of diabetes. So what do you, what do you see as the root cause of diabetes? I think, uh, it's basically the glucocentric approach versus, um, the insulin, the insulin, the, the excess insulin to me. Now, when I look at diabetes, I think, okay, the body is basically screaming and saying, stop the madness, stop, stop bringing in excess. We are totally full. And, and this results of course, in more and more insulin. And it's, for me, it's all about the insulin and diabetes is just a symptom. It's a severe symptom of this, but it's, it's not, you know, it's not all about the glucose. The glucose is just one of the many symptoms of insulin resistance. So I think this is where I really, the perspective is different. So. Yeah. So you were, you were trained that the disease is the high glucose and you lower the high glucose by giving more insulin. But right. now it sounds like you realize the problem is the high insulin and you can reduce the problem, the underlying problem by reducing the insulin to start with, which is amazing that it can just not be a little bit off, but like 180 degrees backwards. And that just like amazes me. And I imagine as an endocrinologist going through this, it's got to amaze you as well. It is because, you know, we've been trained to lower the insulin, whatever it takes. So if you have to give a ton of insulin and you just keep lower adding the glucose, insulin, lower, lower the, the glucose, glucose, whatever it takes. Yeah. Whatever. It's like, sorry, I'm speaking Hebrew uh, in order to lower, <laughs> in order to lower the, the sugar, just give as much insulin as necessary. But you, we know that that's not the approach because that just makes the disease worse. It's kind of like a, a bandaid, right? It, right. it might make things better temporarily, but it just makes the underlying process worse. Right. And so, and actually we're talking about diabetes as if it's one thing. So there's type two diabetes and type one diabetes, but interestingly, some of the pathophysiology stays the same. And you wrote an interesting article about reclassifying type one diabetes. So first give us sort of the, 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 the basics of the difference between type one and type two, and then tell us about why we should reclassify type one and how you see it. Um, well, basically I think they're opposites. They're just type one and type two diabetes. Type one diabetes is a lack of insulin and type two diabetes is too much insulin. 
So we only see a real decrease in insulin years and years later, if, if at all, okay? But relatively speaking, there's still insulin around. And type 1 diabetes is just a, a lack of insulin. And, um, and sometimes there happens to be some element of insulin resistance. And the way we're treating type 1 diabetes is problematic because since their t- patients are told to eat as much as you want and just cover it with insulin and cover it with insulin, then they lead, they themselves, type 1s become insulin resistant when they shouldn't have been. So there's, there's, uh, a, a, there are two layers to it. So lots of times I use medications of type 2 diabetes to try to decrease insulin resistance to help them um, decrease their insulin levels. And then they really become a true type one. Yeah. So that's also probably very counter to how you were trained in your endocrinology fellowship that um, type one had a completely different um, physiology that you just didn't have enough insulin, period. That's it. So give more, give more, give more. And then by eating more carbohydrates, taking more insulin, you actually make the body more insulin resistant. So now it's like a hybrid of type one and type two, but the, the treatment doesn't seem, or the thinking doesn't seem to adapt to that. And it's still just give more insulin, give more insulin. Um, yeah. So I guess that's another, we said it's sort of lonely the way you see yourself among your colleagues. That's probably another one. They probably think you're crazy to be treating someone with type one diabetes, similar to the way you would treat someone with type two. Do you see that reaction? Oh yeah. Yeah. No question. There's a lot of fear. There's a lot, a lot of fear. People are are afraid of ketones. They're afraid of uh, LDL. They're afraid of saturated fat. Then, you know, all of the themes that you know so well, but Mm -hmm. you know, that that it's particularly um, ingrained in in the diabetes doctors and in endocrinologists. They're, I think they're the last bastion to change. (laughs) I would say cardiologists are, but maybe maybe (laughs) endocrinologists too. (laughs) Yeah. We both have our work cut out for us for educating our colleagues, I guess, for sure. So, so give us an idea though. I mean, since you've changed your thought process about how you approach the treatment of type two diabetes or type one diabetes, what have you seen as the results and the outcomes for your patients? You can be, it's like a point in time, right? You, you can see just increasing, increasing the meds and, and just being well-controlled, okay? This is the normal treatment. You just add another medication and you add another medication and there are some really great new medications out there and you just keep on adding them slowly, slowly. Um, and you maintain, it's kind of like you kind of sort of sustain the, the condition. What's so much fun about the low-carb movement and about the, the, the treatment is that you de-escalate you, you de-prescribe, you, you give the patient so much power uh, over, over their future. And, and the, you know, the abdominal obesity starts to melt away, the fatty liver goes away, the hypertension slowly, not so fast in my experience, goes away. Um, uh, and of course, the sugar, the sugar is like, I love it. I love treating diabetics actually much more than all the other metabolic uh, syndrome because the results are so easy and so the, the feedback is so fast because you see, you know, you had an A1C 10, now you have 5.5. Okay. You know, like that's really powerful. So, yeah. um, you know, it's a, an easy feedback that's like very, you know, positive for the patient. So would you say that, that a, a carbohydrate reduction and a strict low carb diet is more effective at controlling type two diabetes than any other medication? Would you be so bold to make that statement? Absolutely. Okay, yeah. well, let's look at the cutting edge um, medication like SGLT2, right? Mm-hmm. Um, these medications are, um, they're, they're now, you know, considered uh, miracle drugs. Uh, and every, and even, even 
getting into the cardiologist field is now starting to take off because they reduce uh, heart failure and they uh, have a lot of they have mortality benefit. But the question is, when you look at the A1C reduction, is only 0.5. Okay, so you can achieve a lot more with a low carb diet. And a lot of times, I have to argue with a cardiologist because, as you probably know, SGLT2 medications can be very dangerous because they lo- they do lower insulin, and this is why they're so great. But in my opinion, but um, well, they 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 do so in an artificial way because they lower sugar through the urine. And when they do that, that lowers um, the insulin levels. And so they do increase ketones. But when combined with a low-carb diet, it can be actually quite scary because you can artificially lower insulin too much. Um, And so I say, okay, so between the two, I definitely prefer that you stick with the diet. And then I take them off the SGLT2 and the cardiologist doesn't like that at all. But I, I, I love it because the patient is going to get so much more benefit out of it. Instead of a little bit of decrease in their sugar, they're going to have a huge decrease if they want to stick with the diet. Yeah, I think this is going to be an interesting sort of cross point of um, using low-carb diets because now more and more people are being put on SGLT2 inhibitors by their endocrinologist, by their primary care doctor, and now by their cardiologist because for so long medications to reduce blood sugar might reduce blood sugar, but didn't improve cardiovascular outcomes, didn't improve your risk of dying. But now the SGT, just SGTL2 SGLT2. inhibitors, SGLT, yes, two inhibitors. Gosh, I get tongue-tied on all these things. Yes. Um, that that they, um, they do reduce cardiovascular events. They do reduce mortality. So more and more people are using them thinking they are the best treatment. But it is interesting. Would you say they work kind of the same... Uh, the, the same mechanism as um, a low-carb diet and that they're the one drug that actually does reduce the insulin, like you were saying. So do you think that's where their power and their benefit comes from? In my mind, there's no question. I mean, yeah. it, it, uh, it's just, it's definitely not the blood pressure reduction. It's definitely not the weight reduction. It's definitely not the sugar reduction. To me, it's, it's the fact that you're lowering insulin. And this, yeah. in the end, is and the heart loves ketones, as we know. And when you're in trouble and and you're working on ketones, you're gonna do better. So I think that and, and I don't. I'm sure that it's, that it's multifaceted and and not as 100% straightforward as this. But I, you know, why do just like when you reduce when you take off people when you lower insulin. A lot of people, you know, a lot of patients have a lot of swelling on their, in their legs with insulin. And you lower the insulin with the diet, and then they, all the edema, the swelling goes away. And, um, and it's just the lowering of the insulin. So, when, you know, it's lowering of the fluids, but, it, but it's much more so, you know, when, when they compare it with uh, diuretics, that you don't get the same effect. Okay, there's something about lowering the insulin that is playing right. a role here. So how would you react to a doctor who says, well, look, I've got outcome data. I've got five-year outcome data showing that these drugs have benefit. You can't say the same for a ketogenic diet, so I'd rather have my patient eat carbs and take the drug. Like, <laughs> that seems like a pretty a common response. Yes. Yeah, so how would, you, how would you react to that? I say <laughs> it's a tough battle. I, I, I say we're probably never going to have this mortality data because – this study is just never going to be done. It requires, requires millions, and we're never going to have this opportunity to feed people 
low carb and follow them for years and, and you know, in 40 centers around the world to get an answer. Um, so I think that mechanistically, it makes more sense to go on keto. I once had a conversation with Steve Finney about this and he calls it stealth keto. And I love the way he said that because it really is, to me, this is like little keto. You know, you go on real keto and this is where you're gonna get the real benefit. To me, my argument is when I put somebody, I, a lot of the patients come to me on SGLT2 and I'm like, I already see what the SGLT2 is doing. Give me the opportunity of taking it off. And then you'll see how all of the, all, all of the uh, triglycerides, fatty liver, et cetera, improve beyond what I already see. So I, I, this is my argument. And then, you know, you can see after three months, you see the change in a committed patient. So, yeah. That's a good point. If you've already seen what the SGLT2 inhibitor can do, then you say, okay, now let's see what the, the carbohydrate reduction, low carb diet can right. do. And if it's more impressive, then you've got your data for that individual right. patient. But it's so a proxy, that does make right? Sense. It's still a proxy, right? We don't know, but yeah. that's the problem. And we won't know. And so that's all right. we have to live with that. Yeah. Yeah. So it is, it is sort of an uphill battle, but now you've got, you've got your own center for diabetes care in Tel Aviv. So what is the reception in Israel? Because, you know, every place is different in terms of the culture, in terms of the atmosphere, in terms of the nutrition, you know, in terms of the history. So when you now are sort of putting your stake in the ground, it's like, all right, we are treating type 2 diabetes and type 1 diabetes with carbohydrate reduction. What do you think is the reaction for most people from a cultural standpoint? Because, you know, I remember, I haven't been to Israel in like 30 years, but there's, you know, there's uh, the shawarma where they're just cutting the meat, which is great but it's packed in a pita and every Friday out comes the challah and the bread. And so it is sort there's this carb culture. So what's the reaction there? It's, um, don't forget the fruit there. There's a huge bowl of fruit in every, in every kitchen. It's part of the culture. Uh, it's actually part of the national identity, the orange from Yafu, et cetera. Like there's a very, it's very much linked to the identity of the country. And when you tell somebody, you know what, we're going to leave the fruits aside for now. They're like, what? You know, it's like, <laughs> you know, there's no way. Like, fruit doesn't even count as a food. So, um, you know, it's a very big battle. Um, bread is also huge. Actually, you know, from, from uh, this need for bread, uh, I had... Uh, you know, Israel is, a, I, I started two things. First of all, I, what happened is that um, I started making bread, all the breads from the, the recipe books and um, that we see that we know so well. And, and I started uh, recommending to patients, okay, go make your own bread. If you're going to fall for, you know, I, I'm, I'm personal more, personally more on the carnivore side. I really, I really love a very clean diet. I like meat, chicken, fish, eggs, but a lot of the patients just fall because without the bread and they cannot do it. They just cannot do it. So then I said, okay, uh, you know, the best is the enemy of the good. And we're going to, we're going to need these, the, uh, something to help us out. And this is how um, I started uh, making breads and chocolates um, that fit the diet. And actually this has become a real startup, which is kind of comical to me. And I can't believe this is actually happening, but it became a, um, a real thing. And, um, and we were able to, we're actually launching in the U S uh, very soon. Um, so that's, so this that's, is, uh, this is eat sane. This is that your, sane. your, yes. Yeah. Yes. And, and so you make your own low carb pitas and your own low carb yes. breads. And, yes. Yeah. 
low carb pitas are very soon coming out. They're, they're, you know, they fall. I see, you know, the flat sugar, no, no increase in, uh, in, in no, no increase in insulin or sugar actually. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's very tasty and no artificial sweeteners because I really am very, I feel very strongly against uh, artificial sweeteners because I, I just see how it, it keeps you addicted and it makes it much harder to, to drop the addiction. So I, I, um, I really looked for that and I couldn't find it. So this is how, how I started making it. So, so you said you think it's comical. So does that mean like you, you never had any sort of entrepreneurial, um, aspirations you never wanted to sit out to create your own business it just sort of like fell on your lap and you looked around and no one's doing it so you're like all right i guess i have to do it is that basically how it happened that's, that's basically what happened also it, 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 the two things happened that i i started when i opened my own clinic i i wanted to give the patients a chocolate when they left as a kind of like a twist like you know you can have like a happy life you know, uh, even eating low carb, but then I started looking for chocolates and I couldn't find them anywhere. So I started, I brought like 10 kilos of dark chocolate from Argentina and started making it in my kitchen and making my kitchen and, and then giving it to wrapping it in like, uh, the stuff that this paper that I brought from Amazon and like very, very homemade. <laughs> and the patients were like, this is awesome. Like, why aren't you making this for real? And finally one patient who actually had his daughter, I, I normally don't treat kids, but he had totally convinced me uh, to take care of his daughter. Um, he, uh, he was like, okay, we're doing this. And the whole, just the whole thing like took off slowly cause he wasn't in the food business and I had not, no idea whatsoever, but it, so it is comical and my family still can't believe it, but it's, it, 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 it's very helpful. It really helps people. So, yeah, I think that's such a great example of, of the meeting, you know, meeting the pa- patients where they are. And we hear that term all the time, but sometimes it's not clear exactly what it means, but in this case, it's perfectly clear. Like you prefer the carnivore, but if you tried to promote that to your patients, they, they might just turn away and say, forget it. I can't live this way. But instead you're helping them find a bridge to get them to the, the solution they need. But starting from their culture, from their beliefs, from their tastes and their enjoyment, that's the true meaning of meeting them where they are. Yeah. Trying to make it sustainable. Yeah. Yeah. Did you, did you learn that by first trying to get people to kind of go more towards the carnivore and just seeing the resistance? Or did you just know, I know my, I know this culture, I know this land and this is not going to work here. Did you, how did it come um, about? I think it's, it was more trial and error. You know, you just yeah. see that the patients fall because there's no bread. And I'm like, well, but there are all these recipes and go and make it at home. But the problem is that people are busy, et cetera. So this was kind of trying to find a solution. Um, but it's just, uh, it's very hard to change habits. People don't want to change their habits. So I, um, but there's some that do. Some really, some do. And I really encourage them. I actually don't even bring up the bread at all. You know, I really, it, it, I, I prefer no bread um, and uh, no substitutes. But then, um, you know, exactly. We try to meet them. Yeah. We, we, we do what we can. <laughs> Yeah. And then I guess the the benefit of being in Israel or just the Middle East in general is that olives and olive oil is everywhere, right? So that's probably also part of the culture that is a beneficial thing. So do you find that to be a benefit? Well, it's a, there are two sides of this. On the one hand, olive oil is, is amazing and it's great. The flip side of this is that Israel has a huge consumption of polyunsaturated fats. And the reason is that kosher uh, doesn't allow you to mix milk and meat together. So you can't like fry 
a, a meat with butter or you can't you can't mix these things so Actually, it was the Haredi, the Orthodox community, that was one of the first to take up, you know, Crisco and these uh, polyunsaturated fats because they were very convenient. It's very, it was parv, meaning that you, it could be used with milk or meat. And uh, I think that the the nutrition in, in the in the Jewish community is the, the religious Jewish community is actually very very worrisome because mm-hmm. they very very high amount of polyunsaturated fats. So, um, I mean, I would say that this is just as bad as the Coke. You know, it's a very, very significant portion of their diet. So what do you advise them to do? I mean, what what do you tell them to use as their substitutes or their go-tos? I I say, let's go back to what your grandmother was doing 100 years ago. You know, use the animal fat. And uh, it's it's not easy. Yeah. Yes, you don't have to use butter. You don't have to mix the, the, the milk and meat, but you can just use the, the pure animal fat rather than the manufactured seed oil fat. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And, and I'm, I'm sure there's some resistance to that because it's not as easy. You can't just go to the sh- you know, store and buy it cheaply off the shelf. Sometimes you have to make it on your own. So what kind of, what kind of hacks do you have to help people succeed with that a little bit better? This is something that I struggle with. This is something yeah. that I really struggle with. You know, I see in the U.S. you can buy a tallow and things like this. Here, you just can't. So, uh, you know, um, we're it's something. There's your other business opportunity right uh, there, <laughs> as if you need more things I, to do, right? I, uh, we, let's partner up and we'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. One of the other things I wanted to talk to you about. You gave a great talk at um, I think it was Low Carb Denver about reversing diabetes and, and sort of reawakening the pancreas. And, and, uh, so for those with type two diabetes, where their insulin output has now started to not match what they need. So initially the insulin is too high because of the insulin resistance, but eventually the pancreas gets tired, so to speak, or starts to fail and the insulin drops, not to zero, but drops lower than it needs to be. And you showed some really interesting data about, um, about being able to reawaken that pancreas. So tell us um, your approach to how you think about whether someone can reawaken their pancreas and regain pancreatic function to truly reverse their diabetes. First of all, one of the things that we know clearly is that how long you've had diabetes is a big predictor of how, how well we're going to be able to get off the meds and also how, how high uh, those numbers were throughout your history. So the toughest patients are those that are, you know, A1C 13 for 10 years or more, okay? And in those cases, I mean, we still can make a lot of progress, okay? We can still really make a big, make big difference. There's always some reawakening to do. And this brings me back to also what kind of medications the patient has been on. Because if you've been on medications like gliburide or uh, all, the, um, all the sulfonylureas or... Um, you know, the glucose, um, yeah, all the, like Novo Norm, I forget the English, the American names, but, um, um, and, and the metiglinides and any kind of medication that increases the, the, the production of insulin by the pancreas actually squeezes the pancreas. It increases uh, reactive oxygen species and, and actually kind of destroys the pancreas. So while it temporarily increases insulin secretion, it actually ends up destroying the pancreas. And in those patients, I tell them from the beginning, it's going to be very tough to really truly revert this right away. It's going to take a long time. So first of all, this 
the use of this medication is a problem, um, which now they're using them less and less, but still it's a problem. Uh, duration of diabetes and, uh, and, and degree of, of how bad the diabetes is. So these are the factors that, that lead me to this. But I'm very, sometimes you just, all you have to do is combine with the new medications. For example, if you take these really tough, tough cases and you put them on a GLP-1 agonist, like for example, Ozempic, and you add, and you know, I like to keep metformin on for just for most people if, if they're willing to take it because I, I, I almost don't consider it a drug. Um, and uh, if you keep metformin and you combine it, and you know, sometimes I even use this GLT2, but you know, maybe every third day, kilo, you, you have to really, um, you know, tailor made the, the treatment, of course. You have to individualize it, no question, as long as you're checking ketones in those patients that you're using as GLT2. But in my opinion, you can most of the time get them off the insulin and have them, you know, combine it with the new drugs that, that are kind of thinking the same way the, the, the diet is. And then you can really make huge progress, even in those patients that are really far advanced. Yes, yeah, so that's so interesting because there are, there are studies that look at, you know, reversal and remission of, of type 2 diabetes, which, by the way, was something we never even heard of before. It seems like uh, in your training and my training, we never even encountered this. But now we're talking about it and arguing about it, about whether we're doing a good enough job, you know, whether we're really getting remission or reversal. You know, as if people just love to find things to argue about instead of just being in awe of the fact that we're actually discussing this topic and that it's actually happening. But... One thing that really matters is how long you've been, uh, how long you've had type two diabetes, what medications you've been on, and these are probably some of the things that get lost when you just try and lump people together and say what kind of effect are you are you having. Um, so, so I think that's really interesting. I bet if you if you parsed out uh, the populations that way, you would see a pretty dramatic difference in in this this concept of reversal or, or remission. Yeah, and actually, when you compare low carb, the results from from Verda, for example, compared to a very low calorie diet, they do better uh, in people that have been that have had longer diabetes. So, um, it, when you compare head to head these type of trials, so yeah. I, I um, you know, and I, I exactly it's exactly what you said. I mean, there, the option is zero reversal. So, you know, if you see a fifty percent reversal, I think we should be very excited about it. Yeah, and I guess the other option then is, is bariatric surgery, which you know, is, is gotten much safer and easier on the patients over the years, but is still a, a surgery. But that's um, probably all we had before low-carb diets for reversing uh, type 2 diabetes. So do you see the same thing, I don't know, in terms of how long someone's had it and what, um, what medicines they've been on in terms of their ability to uh, recover after um, bariatric surgery and reverse their diabetes? Yes, it's the same. It's the same risk factors. So uh, yeah. it's the same thing. It's interesting because I used to send people for bariatric surgery before this, and the surgeon's like, "Where have you gone?" <laughs> I really, I, 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 it's very rare that I send someone for surgery. Very rare. Yeah, and one thing that I find so interesting comparing. Uh, low carb diets to bariatric surgery is the the weight loss with bariatric surgery seems to be much greater and much faster, but the metabolic effects and the the um, blood sugar control and the diabetes reversal is either the same or better for low carb diets even without that extra weight loss. I find that so interesting. I mean, I haven't seen enough in my practice to say because, like I said, I haven't. I really can't remember the last time, but I, I um. 
Yeah. You know, it's again, it's not just about losing weight. It's where you lose the weight also. Right. Yeah. That's a great point. That's a great point. Now, now you went so far, I think in, in one of your articles to say we should never be using insulin on someone with type two diabetes. Wow. Did I, <laughs> did you, I don't know. Did, maybe don't I'm making remember. that up. But, I, 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 okay. I might've said that. Well, I just think, uh, I think it's, uh, it's wrong. Okay. It, it, there, it does, doesn't make sense that we should be people treating type twos with insulin. Um, yeah. if there's, you know, the funny thing is that I've evolved over time because I used to really give people insulin, very intensive course to re- reverse the glucotoxicity, uh, because this actually does help that when you normalize sugar levels, then the beta cells start secreting more insulin. So I used to give an intensive insulin course and then change the, you know, keep with on, on with medications, but it would give the boost to the pancreas to start secreting more insulin once you clear that glucotoxicity. But um, it, it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. The problem is too much insulin. The body is rejecting that sugar and giving more insulin is just going in the wrong direction. So yeah. that's why, I mean, I, I don't remember ever starting insulin once that became totally clear to me. Of course, a lot of my patients are on insulin because they've come on insulin. So then I have to take them off slowly. And not right. always do I succeed, but most of the time it's, it is doable. 90, yeah, 98% so of the time. No, it would be wonderful if every patient with type two diabetes on insulin could come and see you, that would be great. And then they would have an expert managing them, but obviously not everybody can. And some people who are, who have type two diabetes and are on insulin want to start a low carb diet to see the benefits. Their doctor may not be on board or supportive. Um, but it could be dangerous if they do so. So what kind of advice can you give, obviously without giving direct medical advice, cause this is just, you know, a podcast here, not talking to any patients, but what kind of advice would you give to people of what to be wary of, what to look out for and how to do it, do it safely? Well, I think it, because it's so powerful, it's a, such a powerful treatment. We have to be careful of hypoglycemia. So if you're taking insulin, then I would say, just in case it's better to overshoot, meaning like to be, to have high glucose instead of low glucose as you're going through the, uh, through the transition. Um, so I like to decrease insulin by about 30 to 50%, depending on how strict the patient is going to be. Um, but if they're going complete to be very, very committed, then I, I like to cut insulin by about 50% from the beginning. And, um, and then you continue to decrease and decrease until it becomes obvious that they can come off of it. And one thing they need to understand is that every time you lower the insulin, there's going to be a time period where the sugar might go up for a week or two. But if you just stop bringing in the sugar into the body, then it just keeps coming down afterwards. It, 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 you, re, you, you readjust and, and keep going down. The other medication that you really have to be careful of is the SGLT2 because you can get into what's called diabetic ketoacidosis, which is um, basically an acidosis where the sugar looks good and you don't see that there's something wrong, but the insulin is so low that you can actually end up in the emergency room and it can be a really big deal. Yeah, it could be life-threatening. So that's, yeah, I think that's a very good thing to be wary of. Okay. All right, so now let's transition off of talking about management of of type two diabetes to talk about, you know, where we are in today's world where everything is COVID related and rightly so. Um, and you've written some articles, um, about COVID and sort of the relationship 
between metabolic health, type 2 diabetes, and COVID. Um, so I'm curious, do you think this is like a, a just a prime opportunity for people to be more aware of metabolic health and about potential for low carb nutrition and you know how do what do we need to do to make people more aware of that I don't know I'm trying everything I can right <laughs> as you know uh, we started uh, an NGO to try to make, to bring awareness to this topic and we can talk about it an hour later but the mm-hmm. bottom line is that it's amazing how we spend so much time talking about the vaccine and and uh, all of these things, which are super necessary in my opinion. But we have an actual vaccine in my mind, which is having a healthy immune system. And I and and well, we can't really say that there's a leap here that I can't really say. I can't guarantee that if you eat this way. Uh, if you eat low carb, you're going to be immune from having severe COVID. Of course, I can't make that, that statement. But what we can say is let's look at the reverse. Let's look at the people who are dying from COVID. And these are people that have cardiovascular disease, which to me is a different way of saying metabolic disease. You have people that are dying with hypertension, same thing, diabetes, and obesity. These are the driving the mortality. And in those who don't have it, they probably have it and they don't know it. I'm sure they have a high insulin levels, and I would say in, in a big percentage. Uh, I, I'm sure, of course, there are other categories, but this is an overwhelming number, which is one of the reasons I believe in the U.S., which has so much trouble with metabolic syndrome, this epidemic is hitting so hard. So we know from studies that we can revert metabolic disease in quite a short time. And if, and if we can do this, and at least not put ourselves in the high risk category. So yes, I'm trying to get this message across that while there's not, while we we're, we're sitting at home um, feeling sorry for ourselves, we can actually be taking care of ourselves and doing the thing that that protects us the most, also for COVID, but also period in the long term. I think of it as a great opportunity to uh, to change the trajectory of things. Uh, by just simply watching what you eat. Instead of eating those Cheetos and donuts and giving the nurses that are in the front lines all this terrible food, let's feed our body what it needs to be eating and what it needs for nutrition and fix this. We can correct this metabolic problem. It's totally correctable. So it does, it's like an epidemic on top of an epidemic. And I really feel like this is an opportunity, like you say, to, to, to bring this message across. And unfortunately, there are not a lot of ears <laughs> that are that I want to hear this message. Um, it's it's really frustrating because it, it's just not it's not that sexy to to say you know you have to watch what you eat. <laughs> it's just right. not that interesting. Uh, it's not uh, technological. It's not a uh, you know right. And it it's become pretty controversial because there are some strong voices that say, oh, it's not coronavirus isn't really something you need to worry about if you just take care of yourself and then it would disappear. And then there are others who say, how can you make that statement? And, you know, there are healthy people dying. And so I like your sort of measured approach to it that, you know, you can't guarantee that you're not going to have a problem with it. But since all the people having problem with it are have metabolic disease or the majority of the people, you just don't want to be in that camp. And then, and then you, it would be so interesting to see that world, how bad coronavirus is in that world, but we don't know. And we're not going to have that opportunity. So we sort of do have to have that two headed approach of, you know, the, the social distancing, the masks, the vaccines, and 
working on your metabolic health. And if you do both, then we're almost certainly going to get out of this in much better shape than if we didn't. I know. Um, we, we tried to reach my friend Jessica Apple and I, who is a, uh, who has a low-carb website called thesweetlifegut.org. She, she has really been trying to reach the government um, and trying to say, you know, we're spending so much energy on on technologies, et cetera. Why don't we just spend a little bit of effort in, in trying to uh, to educate people on how to eat? Just a little bit, right? You know, but we haven't succeeded. <laughs> well, like you said, there—I mean, there are lots of people who need to hear this, but aren't open to hearing it. And you know, hopefully that the tide may be changing, but we'll have to see. No. Yeah, yeah. Now, while we're on the topic of COVID and vaccines, Israel is has been in the news for like what a phenomenal job they're doing distributing the vaccine to people in terms of the you know the percentage of the population and the number of vaccines per you know thousand people or whatever metric you look at Israel's at the top of course the United States is like way at the bottom um so what is Israel doing so well and what can the rest of the world learn from Israel to to get up to speed with the vaccinations yeah well first of all it's a it's organized there are only four HMOs in Israel, okay? It's socialized medicine and it works, okay? It, it really, in my opinion, compared to what I've seen in the U.S., practicing in the U.S., wow, what a relief it is here, okay? Because everybody has coverage and it's a new, it's a different world. It, it, it's something that is is a right and I'm, I am so appreciative of it because I know the alternative. So, um uh, I think the way it's structured, it, it just it, it mobilized everybody in a very, very organized way. And and it was really shocking to see it. But because it's it's four HMOs that are very organized and they, they really took this very seriously. And and it's really I have to agree. It, it's very impressive. And then, they, you know, they have websites and everything is set up and everything roll is rolling. And and I think, um, you know, we're ready to get leave this behind. <laughs> yeah. Right. You know, I've, I've heard pe- I've heard people talk about it and they said, like, in the U.S., we're so concerned about making sure the people who are the front of the line get it and nobody else gets it yet. And, like, we're very protective of doing things in the right order. Whereas Israel, and I don't know if this is true or not, I just heard one people saying that, that they, that they sort of have the structure of who they want to get first, but their priority is just, just get everybody. So if someone's walking down the street and you've got a couple extra doses, you just pull them in and you jab them in the arm and they go about their way. I don't know if it's quite that informal, but, but like that was sort of the, the explanation of the culture and the approach. Like rather than, you know, having to follow the rules, nobody step out of line. There are penalties if you step out of the line. Israel's like, all right, we're going to try and follow the rules, but let's just get it done. Like, is that, is that a fair that, representation? That's pretty, a pretty good representation of Israel. <laughs> yeah. In yeah. general, just in general. In general. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. So, All right. Um, so yeah, but uh, it, it also kind of depends on the HMO. So if you have a, 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 some more stricter than others, and but it's really fun, uh, you know, to see uh, you know start. They started with the older populations and the healthcare workers, and now it's moving down the ages, the age groups, and uh, people are starting to breathe again. So, but yeah. we know that the numbers are still going up. So let's let we have to wait until things. Oh. Really, uh, we're so that's still interesting. Quarantine. Yeah, we're still even right with now, even with those vaccines, the numbers are still going up. Yeah, yeah, this, the numbers mm-hmm. are going up right now. We're we are in a full quarantine. Like my kids are not going to school right now. You know, everything is closed except uh, right. And and that has its own negative impacts as we've as we've learned. No so I mean, that's it. the other aspect of if we were 
you know, healthier populations with lower metabolic disease? Could we have avoided all the quarantines and sort of the, the harsher lockdowns and, and avoided some of those negative aspects? And again, we won't know the answer to that question, but it's something we can certainly strive for. But, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, well, because of all this, you, you had a conference, um, was it last year or two years ago? I forget the, the first low carb conference in Israel, November. So before the COVID <laughs> um, crisis, and it was the first ever low carb conference in Israel. And there were like 500 people at this conference, which I thought was just amazing for a first time conference. Uh, what was, what was your response to that type of um, attendance and interest? Oh my God. It was such a blast. It was just thinking about it again. Every time I think about it, I just smile because it was so much fun um, you know, a, a lot of the big shots came, volunteered to c come to Israel. Um, donations came from mostly from my patients and from people that cared about this topic. It was, uh, it was done at the Hilton. One of my, the donors said to me, do it in a place, do it in a real place where you can, you know, get the, you know, they take, they will, they'll, they'll take you seriously. Another patient, so many people came together to make this happen. It's like 20 volunteers started working around the clock nonstop to get the word out. Um, it, was, it was very ambitious to do a conference. Israelis are not used to paying for conferences. So for everybody that bought a ticket, we lost money, okay, because we were subsidizing the ticket. So we wanted more and more people to come. Um, and then one of the one of my best friends who's totally into uh, Asaf uh, Librati, who... who, who um, found you know some, somehow we were able to be on on the media um and we were in the cover of the main newspaper of uh of israel and uh it made sensation and then people just started coming and it was amazing now the people who organized the conference you know they put out a certain amount of chairs and they said nobody always 20 percent people 20 percent less show up well it, they had to open a separate room like they had to open the auditorium, like the, 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 the area, because there were not enough chairs. They, they couldn't believe it. And they also said to me, you know, after lunch, everybody's going to go home. This is the way it is in every single Israeli conference. And it was 5 p.m. It, everybody was on, like on the edge of their seats. I swear <laughs> to you, I swear to you, the energy in the room was unbelievable. So anyway, we wish we could do that again in person, but we're going to have to wait. And in the meantime, yeah. we're we're um, we're launching our our lecture series. It's like a conference, but we decided so to not overwhelm people on Zoom. We decided to do it as a lecture series, uh, starting February fourth with uh, Robert Lustig, and then every week we have a, another uh, lecture. It's Ben Bickman, uh, followed by Nina Teicholz, followed by Jason Fung, so, followed by Asima Holtra. And I'll get to you in a minute, and uh, and um, and followed by Sarah Holberg. So um, uh, these are the main six lectures, and then all of them will be followed by experts such as yourself. And honestly, I've always wanted you to come for a, for a lecture, but the thing is that I know how busy you are, so I was like, I'm just going to ask you to be on the panel. <laughs> well, I'm happy to take part, however I can take part. But I, I really like that structure because, I mean, one thing we've learned is like a full day of Zoom conferences is exhausting. And like, oh my God, it's so hard to do. 
and it's sort of the new normal, right? The way of the new world, but it can be so challenging to do. So I like how you broke it up with one one lecture and then the the moderator and the and the expert discussion afterwards and one each week. And I haven't I haven't seen that in other conferences, so I'm really curious to see how that works. And I think yeah. a lot of people are going to be interested in that format. I hope so. I hope it works, and I really urge everybody to to come in and listen, and it's it's and to sign up. It's Metabolics Org IL. Um, it's a, it's a, it's going to be really great. I mean, there, there's, there's some amazing, amazing people. It's a, you know, the top stars of the, of the field. So, um, we're, we're really yeah. looking forward to it. This is launching very soon. Yeah. Great. I look forward to that as well. Well, so we, we've got to learn a lot about you today and about your journey and about your thoughts on, on diabetes and insulin and, and low carb nutrition and medications. We've kind of d- done a roller coaster of all that. Any, any last thoughts that you want to leave our listeners with um, that you think would be important? And of course, where can they find you and learn more about you to, to see all the exciting stuff in your conference and your, and your products and all that? I, I just think that what's so exciting is that our health is in our hands. And I think that this message is very, very empowering. And, and we don't have to be sick. We don't. We, uh, we don't have to be we can just grow old and die from old age. We don't have to be uh, metabolically sick, which is the condition that we find in ourselves now uh, overwhelmingly. And I think it's uh, w- once you start to understand it and you understand that eating this way, the more, the more people, the, you know, it, it seems extreme because not that many people are doing it, but the more people do it, and then it's, it doesn't, it's not, it's not an extreme diet. It's a tasty, satisfying way of living. And it's also, it's, it's a, it's a positive feedback cycle because once you see that you can make this change, you see that you can make a lot of other positive changes in your life. It's not, it's not isolated. It, it's part of having a better quality of life in general, your sleep, yeah. your, your sex, your life, your human relationships, all of this is part of, of, of a big picture that, that, that comes together. And I think this step is actually the easiest one to make because it's, it's, uh, I think I always start with the food because this is, um, it's actually much, it's not, it's not that complicated. So first of all, I think that once you understand how much power you have, um, uh, you can, you can really do it. And I, and I love diet doctor. I owe so much to diet doctor for teaching me so much for getting me involved in all of this. And, and, you know, I really thank you guys. I think you do an amazing job. It's wonderful. Thank you. Uh-huh. All right. So, um, Great. And yes. so where can people find more about you online? Um, so, um, metabolics it's, uh, you, you go to Facebook for metabolics or, uh, you can sign up on metabolics.org.il. Um, eat sane is the name of the bread. E A T S A N E. Um, and we're going to have, um, you know, I think you have to look up eat sane bread. We're about to launch that so that we need to look for. Um, and I might, I have a new website, but it's not out in English yet. I just came up yesterday, but it's glant C O I L. And I hope very soon to have the English version, but in the Hebrew one, I, I really do get into the, into the whole, um, into, into know, you know, what is keto and why we need to treat diabetes this way, et cetera. So anyway, thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. And I look forward to um, to taking part in the conference and learning from it. I'm really excited about that. Well, we're really looking forward to having you. 
Great. All right. Well, thanks. Have a great day. Bye-bye.